As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Men, Women and the Mystery of Love. A talk by Dr. Edward Sri. Oh, excellent. Okay. All right. How are you doing this evening? Uh, it is a great blessing to be here in the great land of Australia. Like uh, was just mentioned here, I, I've been uh, here for five days. Uh, just completing my 19th talk now in, in, in five days. It's been a blast uh, to be here. I was here last year. I want to get a show of hands here. How many people were at Notre Dame last year when I spoke on this topic? So how many of you? Only a few. Oh, good. That's good news. I was worried. You're all going to hear the same talk again. I don't have to like tell new jokes or something, but you're all brand new to this. So this is awesome. So I've been very blessed to be at young adult gatherings like this in different places from Dublin to New York to all the way here in Sydney and down in Melbourne. And this is a topic I'm really passionate about. I've written a book about this topic, but all I'm going to be sharing with you, these aren't my ideas. This isn't my own little insights. I'm just passing on the wisdom of a great hero, of a man who made a big difference in my own life and what he li- the way he lived and what he wrote about, and that's St. John Paul II. So we're going to be talking uh, about him this evening. But before we even do that, I just want to share with you something. You know, when I think about this topic, when I think about this topic, about men and women relationships, I'm reminded of kayaking. Kayaking. Have any of you been involved in kayaking before, ever gone kayaking? Well, I want to tell you, I had never done it before until I was in my late 20s, and my wife and I, we were just newly married, and we had a chance to go kayaking with a bunch of the missionaries in an organization back in the States called FOCUS, Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And they were going on this big adventure in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and they invited us to go kayaking, and I thought, this is awesome. I'll never get a chance to do this again. Let's go for it, honey. So we went there, and there was a guide who was giving us instructions on how to operate the kayak. And I don't remember much of what he taught us that day, but there is one very important lesson he gave us that I will never forget. And that is this. He said, if you happen to fall out of your kayak, don't try to stand up in the river. The river's very shallow. You'll think, oh, you can stand up in it because it's shallow, but the river's so powerful, it'll knock you down. What you want to do is just hold on to your life jacket and then make it to the top of the surface and wade to the side. Don't try to stand up in the river. And they went on and gave a whole bunch of other instructions about operating the kayak. And eventually we got suited up. We pushed off of the shore. And my wife and I are cruising down the Arkansas River in the beautiful Colorado Rocky Mountains. I'm in the front seat. She's in the back seat. And for about the first five or seven minutes, it was smooth sailing, calm peaceful waters. We're taking in the beautiful scenery, snow-capped mountains, clear blue day. But we knew eventually that we were going to be tested. We did. We knew that eventually we were going to hit those white water rapids and it was going to get rough going. And sure enough, we heard the roar of our first rapids coming. And my, my heart started racing. My adrenaline started pumping. And we, we went into the first rapids and we almost completely capsized over to the left and then I tried to correct and almost overcorrected as we almost tilted over on the right, but we eventually pushed through. We made it to the other side and we we're back on the calm waters. We conquered our first rapids and I was so excited. I turned around to Beth and said, we did it, honey. 
And she had a look of horror on her face. She looked like this. She was going like this. You see, what happened was when I turned around to celebrate prematurely, I turned the kayak sideways with me. And we were now going sideways down the Arkansas River. And the momentum just carried us completely to a 180. So we were now going backwards down the Arkansas River. And eventually I just let it carry us all around so I could be straight up again with a 360. But by that time, it was too late. It was too late because there was a big log, a big piece of wood that had fallen halfway over the river. And while everybody in our group followed our guide around the log, we were headed straight forward. <laughs> and I don't know if you know what happens when your kayak brushes up against a log. You know what happens? Immediately, the kayak is taken under the river. It's swept away by the river. And it was gone. And the river wanted to take Beth and I away with it as well. And we are holding onto this log, this log for dear life. We're just dangling there, desperately holding on. And I was so scared because I didn't know what was on the other side of this log. I couldn't pull myself up to see. I didn't know if this was a beaver dam. I didn't know if there was a waterfall. I didn't know if there was a bunch of rocks. Am I going to die if I let go of this thing? Well, I looked at my wife and she's next to me and I just said, I smiled. I said, been a good first year of marriage, honey. <laughs> well, our guide eventually came backwards up the river to find us, these poor souls dangling there. And, and, and he says, it's okay, don't worry, just let go, you'll be fine. And so we did one of those, ready? One, two, three. <gasps> and we let go and whoosh, the river sweeps us away. And I'm I have no control over my body. I'm just being swept down the river and I'm choking in all this water. And the river was really shallow, so I kept hitting my rear end on every rock in the Arkansas River. Boom, 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 boom. And I didn't really like that feeling. So guess what I did? I just tried to stand up. That's what I did. I just tried. I really I tried. I put my foot down like in the ground to try to stand up and stop myself and boom, the river just made me topple over and I'm choking in more water and losing control and in a panic, I try to stand up a second time and bam, the river knocks me down a second time and again, I'm just panicking, trying to desperately stand up and boom, I knock down a third time, choking in more water and finally I remember, don't try to stand up in the river. <laughs> So I eventually did what my guide had instructed us to do. I held onto my jacket. I made it above the surface. I took in some much needed H2O and I made it to the, to the shore, got out of the river. I found my wife alive a half mile downstream and we've not been kayaking since. <laughs> but I tell you, it's really hard to stand up against the current of a powerful river. It'll just sweep you away. And the same is true in our culture today. It's really hard to stand up and live a different kind of life than what the mainstream world is trying to push us into, into living, especially when it comes to matters of love and sexuality and dating relationships. The world is telling us one thing, and this is just what you have to do. This is what everyone does. This is how you do it. And if we're not careful, we're going to be just swept away by the culture. But there was, you know, especially since the 1960s, since the so-called sexual revolution, the culture has been trying to sell us on this idea that, hey, you know, 
we, we just need to set, our, set ourselves apart from what tradition tells us. Now, that's just old tradition. But, you know, set yourself free from what your parents tell you about these matters, what your church tells you about these matters. And everyone should just be able to be free to express themselves however they want in their dating relationships, in their romance, in their marriage, in their sexual lives. Because if, if we're not, we don't want to be following some rules from some religion. We want to be authentic. And let's just be able to express ourselves. And if we do that, relationships will be better. Dating will be better. Marriage will be better. Family life will be better. It'll all be better because we'll be being ourselves and not following archaic rules from tradition. That's what the sexual revolution promised, that we would be happier. But we all know, we all know, our relationships better than they were 50 years ago. Not that they were perfect 50 years ago, but are people happier in their relationships? Are, are, are dating relationships better? Are marriages better? Is family life better than it was 50, 60 years ago? Again, not, it was, there were problems a long time ago. Don't get me wrong. But are relationships better today than they were years ago? You don't have to be a scientist, a sociologist, a psychologist to realize this. We all know this deep down, right? Let's just, let's just take, take marriage, for example. Let's talk about marriage. What's the big statistic that's often quoted about the challenge marriage is facing today? How do all marriages end? What's, what, what, what's the big statistic they quote? 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That's a statistic in the USA. What's it like here? What's the rates here? 42 so roughly almost half of all marriages ending in divorce here too. So now think about that. Of almost half of all marriages ending in divorce. That's sad. I mean, I'm not going to talk about divorce here tonight, not because it's not a serious issue. It is a serious issue. I want to be clear about this. I have dear friends who've gone through the pain and heartache of divorce. I'm not minimalizing. I'm not minimizing it. It's just that Everybody knows that's a statistic. And, and in my work with young university students and young professionals in their 20s and 30s, I can tell you many of them, as they enter into the, and they merge into their adult lives, many of them have come from broken homes. And as they enter into their adult lives, they start to realize how coming from a broken home has affected them, especially when they start entering into dating relationships of their own. And that's something a lot of psychologists and sociologists are bringing up more and more in recent decades. So it's a serious matter. It's, I'm not going to talk about it, though, because everyone talks about that. I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about the, the other, the other side. You know, if, if in the United States, 50% end in divorce or here, 42%, whatever the number is, just go back to math class. Remember math class? You have the big pie diagram. Remember the big circle diagram? Picture almost half ending in divorce. I want to talk about the other 50, 55% or so. I want to talk about this side of the pie diagram, the marriages that are staying together. Let's talk about those here. How are those marriages doing? The marriages that actually stay together. Are they happy marriages? Are they marriages in which husband and wife really feel like they married their best friend? Are they marriages that, where, where you find closeness, emotional intimacy, great trust? How are those marriages doing? And what some studies show, at least back in the United States, I can tell you is this, is about, guess what percentage of the marriages that stay together, how many of them are actually really happy? They have close emotional trust and intimacy. They feel like they married their best friend. Guess what percentage? 
it's about 12%. 12%. So think about that. About half are ending in divorce. How is the, the other half doing? Only about 12% are really thriving. I mean, that, that's just a little sliver of the pie diagram. I mean, let's just think about that for a moment. Now, don't get me wrong. For a marriage to stay together is a really, really good thing. To stay together, especially for the children, is a great thing to do, a heroic thing to do, sometimes in great difficulties. But let's be clear. When you, you, when you hope to be married someday, is your hope to simply just, I hope to stay together? Is that your hope? You know? I mean, picture this. A, good, a great marriage isn't one that simply stays together. You know, it'd be like this. If you ask me, let's say I come back, you know, a year or two from now, and we get to meet, and you say, oh, Edward Sri, I remember you spoke at that pub in Sydney, and you talked about your wife, Beth. How's your marriage going? And I said, oh, my marriage? My marriage is awesome. My marriage is going great. We haven't divorced yet. <laughs> Simply avoiding divorce doesn't mean you have a great marriage, right? A great marriage is not just one that stays together. A great marriage is one in which husband and wife can look each other in the eye. 10, 20, 30 years in the marriage and say, I love you more now than I did when we were first married. It's, it's a relationship that's growing in love, growing in trust, growing in virtue, growing in close, closeness. That's what's on the depths of the human heart. We want to be loved. We want a lasting love. We want to be loved for who we are. But it's not just marriages that are suffering today. Many dating relationships. People are experiencing great turmoil in their dating relationships. A lot of people don't even know how to date anymore. There's this whole project in the United States that the Jesuits were behind and helped put together. It's, it's an awesome, awesome program called the, the Dating Project. It's about a professor at, at Boston College who's just teaching people how to date. <laughs> and it's one of the most popular classes because people don't even know. I, I don't know how to ask someone out on a date. I'm afraid if I ask them on a date, do they think I'm going to ask them to marriage? What is this all about? I don't know what to do. You know, I'll just go to Tinder or hookup culture. That's, that, that's just easier because that's just what they grow up with. They don't even know how to live basic friendship with the opposite sex and dating anymore. But it gets worse than that. You know, I'm going to share with you a story of a friend of mine Back in my young adult years, before I worked in this world of theology and writing and all this, I worked in the, in the corporate world, and there was a, one of my colleagues who, she had a lot of ups and downs in her relationships with guys, a lot of ups and downs. And then I left the company, eventually she left the company, I got married, she sent me a, Chris, a, a wedding present, and I, I got caught up with her again. And I didn't know where she was living, so I called her up, and she told me she would move to this new city. I said, oh, well, why are you living there? And she said, oh, that's where my boyfriend lives. In fact, I just moved in with him a couple weeks ago. And when I heard that she moved in with her boyfriend, my heart sank. I thought, oh, no, my poor friend, here she goes again. But I didn't say anything. I just wanted to get caught up and just hear how she's doing. So we, we caught up on life, her job, uh, old friends. But then I came back to the boyfriend. I said, so tell me about your boyfriend. How'd you meet? And she tells me, I go, I, I just got one question. Tell me about your relationship with him. Are you happy? That's all I asked her. I asked her a very simple question about her dating relationship with this guy she was living with. I said, are you happy? That's all I asked her. And on the other end of the phone, it was dead silence for like 10, 15 seconds. Got a little awkward. I was like, did I ask a bad question? But then I started realizing that it wasn't silence on the other end of the phone, but I could hear tears and sniffles on the other end of the phone. She was crying. 
And then through her tears, she starts to tell me, she goes, Ted, I moved in with him a few weeks ago, and I can already see there's issues here, and I I, I don't know what to do, and this has been really hard. I, I thought maybe he would be the one, but... I can tell that, and she's just, she's just bawling. She goes, I, I know he's just using me. And she's just crying. And then she's just, in, in, in all these tears, she's just, just bawling and saying, Ted, why does this keep happening to me? Why does this keep happening to me? Why does this keep happening to me? My friends, what we're going to be talking about tonight isn't just some abstract philosophy or theology from some pope who lived a couple decades ago from Poland. What we're going to be talking about is something very practical, crucial, if you desire to have a long-lasting love in this world, which God wants you to have. The wisdom he offers, JP2 saw that what the sexual revolution was offering would never be able to deliver the goods. It would never be able to satisfy the deep desires on the human heart that we were made for something greater than what our hookup culture and what the lack of dating and the sexual revolutionized world is able to offer. And what I'm going to be sharing with you is meant to help young people because that's what JP2 did. He poured his life out into young university students, young professionals like yourselves because he doesn't want young people to have to keep saying, why does this keep happening to me? So we're going to take a look at a book that he wrote when he was a young priest working with young people just like you. And he spent tons of time with these young people. He prayed with them. He studied with them. He sang with them. He'd go on camping trips with them. He went kayaking with them. Probably better than I went kayaking. (laughs) But he poured his heart out into young people and listened to them. He heard their desires for authentic love and the challenges that the world was offering them. And he wrote a book that was called Love and Responsibility. And I, and I wrote a book that just unpacks love and responsibility. That's the book here. It's called Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. I'm going to be drawing uh, from, from this book here in my presentation today. But again, these aren't my ideas. I'm just trying to unpack JP2's wisdom, make it practical for you. And I want to begin, if we could, with a short prayer. Can we do that? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, to start off, i got to do something really basic. For just a couple minutes, will you work with me just on a couple basic nuts and bolts? To understand what John Paul II, JP2, had to offer us, he begins with a basic ethical principle that he calls the personalist principle. The personalist principle. It's simply, it's very basic. It's simply the idea that we should never treat someone merely as a means to our own end. We should never treat a person merely as a means to our own end. He says that every human person has their own mind, their own intellect to think for themselves. They have their own freedom, their own free will to choose for themselves, make decisions for themselves. And so every person has this beautiful order of their own mind, their own free will, and we should respect that dignity in each person. If I use someone merely as a means to my own end, I'm, I'm violating the great dignity that God has given every individual person. Basically, what JP2 is simply saying is we shouldn't go around using people. And I think that's something that even many of my secular friends could agree, kind of, yeah, I probably shouldn't use people. That's not the best of things, you know. So, so we, we kind of get this. But the challenge is, 
that even the best of us, even, even good Christians can struggle with using people because the air of our secular environment is filled with, a, with an attitude that philosophers call utilitarianism. Utilitarianism. Without getting really abstract, it's just simply like this, that, that we tend to make decisions on, in life based on how useful something is to me. What benefit do I get from this? What advantage do I get from this? What gain do I get from this? Does it cause me discomfort? Does it bring me pleasure? Is this good for me? So we tend to make decisions like that, and that's a fine thing to do when you're making a financial investment. Am I going to gain money or lose? That's a good thing to consider. That That's fine for that with a financial investment. If you're a university student, you have to pick your classes and you realize, this class will help me complete my degree. This class has no purpose in my degree program. You know, you, you make a utilitarian decision. I, I think I'll take this class. Nothing wrong with that. The challenge comes when I take that utilitarian spirit and I apply it to the people in my life. When I take that same utilitarian attitude and now I apply it to people, that's very dangerous because now I start to view the people in my life, my friendships, my dating relationships, I view them primarily in terms of what they do for me. What do I get out of them? What pleasure do I get from them? What feeling do I get from them? What advantage do I get from them? What benefit do I get from them? And so I start using people more for just what I get out of them. And that's dangerous because what happens when someone no longer is pleasurable to me or someone else gives me more pleasure over here? Am I going to stay with this person? No, I'm going to move on. I get more pleasure over here. Or this person's advantageous for me to know. It's a good benefit. They're going to help me advance my career. But now there's someone else that's more advantageous. Am I really going to be committed to that first person? I was only committed to them to the extent that they were useful to me. But if this person here is more useful to me, sayonara, see you later, arrivederci. I move on to the next thing. That's dangerous when we start taking that utilitarian attitude and we start applying it to persons. We've all had that sad experience, haven't we? Of being in a relationship. Maybe it was just a friendship. We thought this person was a real friend. And we come to see they were just using us. We deep down know that's wrong, but we fall into this. You know, I, I use this funny example in the book, and I, I, I saw that Culture Project posted some video last week. I guess someone here in Australia did a little video kind of summarizing my book. I was very, very tickled by that. That was fun. But they tell the story I tell in the book here, and that is this. I'm going to ask you this. I want you to be honest. It's Tuesday. Imagine, well, let's say no. It's, it's Monday night. It is Monday night. And imagine a friend of yours comes up to you and says, hey, there's this great movie coming out on Friday. Do you want to go see the movie? Are you free? And let's say you, you're free. You admit, hey, yeah, I'm free on Friday night. And then your friend says, well, do you want to go see this movie? And let's say it's a movie you really want to see. How many of you, honestly, on Monday night, if someone asks you to do something on Friday, how many of you commit right there on the spot? You are very virtuous people. Thank you. <laughs> Most of us don't do that though, right? Most of us wait. What do we say to our friend? Do we say to our friend, no, I don't want to go. Is that what we say? No, but we don't come right out and say, yes, I commit. What do we tend to do? What do we say? Yeah, let's see. Let me think about it. Yeah, let me get back to you. Let's be in touch, right? Now, that sounds nice and warm and friendly, but let's talk about that for a moment. Why do we do that? If we're free on Friday night, and this is a friend, and it's a movie I want to see, why don't I commit? What am I afraid of? 
FOMO, fear of missing out, right? I'm fear, I'm afraid something else is going to go up, come up, right? There might, I might miss out on some other cool thing, you know? There might be another group of friends are going to do something that'd be really fun. Or that girl I really like, she might be free that night. And so I'm trying to, I want to keep my options open, right? Isn't that something we do? I want to keep my options open. So then why don't we go to our friend and say, hey, thanks so much, that's really kind of you. I, I'd love to do that, but I, I think I'm, I might end up doing something else that night. Why don't we just... Kind of politely just say, you know, maybe I might do something else. Maybe I don't want to hurt my friend's feeling, but what's the real reason we don't say no? What if there is no better option? I don't want to be a loser and stay home on Friday night. <laughs> so I kind of say, hey, let's be in touch, right? I keep my options open, but I've got this, in the, you know, as a possibility, right? Can I just get a show of hands? Honestly, have you ever done that? How many? Come on, raise your hands. Come on, come on. I've done this. Yeah, that's sad. <laughs> but you know what we're doing when we do that? I mean, this is what we're really doing. We're basically saying, thank you, dear friend, for that kind invitation. That's very interesting. But I'm not going to commit to you now because there might be a better option that's more interesting and pleasing to me. But I'm not going to come to you right now and say no because you, my dear friend, I, I don't want to say no to you now, my dear friend, because I want to keep you, my dear friend, as a backup plan. <laughs> That's really what we're doing there. Do you see the kind of ways that even good people, Christians today, could fall into this utilitarianism? It's dangerous when we start applying that to our relationships. Okay, let's start talking about the heart of, J, of, of JP2's thoughts on this. And that is not working. I'm just going to go here. Think we're going to talk about attraction now. All right, this is really fun stuff in JP2. I don't know anyone else that gets to the heart of what's going on in an attraction. When boy meets girl and there's that initial spark and you're interested, what's going on there? What's happening on the inside? I love what he says about this stuff. So I want you to picture a scene. So picture there's some, there's some coffee place here in, in, in Sydney, downtown Sydney, and uh, there's some guy that's there sipping on his coffee some afternoon and he's reading a good book and all of a sudden, some very beautiful girl comes in with all of her friends. And he notices this very attractive girl. He's immediately attracted to her. And he's looking at her, and he looks down at his book. He glances up. He takes a sip of his coffee. He looks up again. He notices her. But it's more than just her physical good looks. He's attracted to more than her good looks because, you see, he's noticed her here before at this time, at this place, which is why he's here again at this time in this place. And, and, and so he, he's noticed her warm personality. He's noticed how they, she interacts with her friends. She's very cheerful. She's joyful. She seems to have a good sense of humor. So he's attracted to something more than just her good looks, her physical features. There's something about her personality. There's this emotional traction going on. Things like this happen all the time. And you don't have to plan it. You don't have to wake up in the morning and say, dear God, help me to be attracted to someone today. You know, it just kind of happens. You're just walking down the street and ding, you just happen to notice someone, right? You're in the checkout line, beautiful girl goes by. Ding, you just notice her, right? Or maybe you're this good, devout Catholic girl here involved in Sydney and a lot of Catholic things and you show up at that culture project night here at the pub and... <laughs> You happen to notice across the way some guy that's new to Sydney and he's never been here before. And you actually get to talk to him for a little bit and you go, wow, 
what a great guy. I can't wait to come to the next culture project night. You know, there's just this attraction that just starts happening. It comes out of nowhere. What is going on when boy meets girl? John Paul II says a couple of things. He says, first of all, every person has value, has dignity for who they are just as a human being, made in the image and likeness of God, as a son or daughter of God. But every person also has sexual value. Every person has sexual value. Now, what's sexual value? We're attracted to the sexual value of the opposite sex. What is sexual value? He describes it as two things. It's very important to get the two things that are going on. We're attracted to someone's physical features, their body, their good looks. But we're also attracted to their psychological qualities. John Paul II describes that as the, the other person's masculinity and femininity. And what he means by this is that there's, there's on one hand, there's a, there's a sensual attraction. So one kind of, there's a physical, a sensual, a sensual attraction to the body, to the physical features of the opposite sex. They're good looks. We all get that. But what people don't often talk about is this emotional attraction. That there's an, emo an emotional attraction to the, uh, to, the, to the psychological qualities of the opposite sex. And JP2 describes that as the masculinity and the, of the man, the femininity of the woman. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Everybody always asks me, well, what does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be feminine? And at least in 1950s Poland, when JP2 wrote that, there wasn't as much questioning about those things. Everyone kind of just assumed it. He doesn't give us a lot of clarity, but I'll give you the one word description he gives. Okay, there's not much here. I'm going to be honest with you, but this is what he says. He says, the man is attracted to the woman's femininity. And then he just gives one word. He says, in parentheses and in quotation marks, her charm. And then he says, the woman is attracted to the man's masculinity. And then he puts in parentheses and quotation marks, his strength. That's it. That's all we get from that. I wish there was more. <laughs> but but, but what I, I, the way I look at it is kind of like this. It's like, we're, we're attract, the man is attracted to the mystery of the opposite, the mystery of the sex. The woman is attracted to the mystery of the man. However you break those down, masculine affinity, it's certainly an emotional attraction that goes beyond just the mere physical attraction. Now, what John Paul II says is this, this, these attractions that we have to the other person's body and to the mystery of their femininity or masculinity, these are good things. God made us this way. We're wired this way. This is a great thing. God wants us to notice these qualities in the opposite sex. But he's concerned that we'll end up reducing the other person to those qualities and the pleasure we may get from them. Let me explain this. So God made us in such a way that we're attracted to these sexual attributes, the physical features and the emotional things. So we're attracted that way. But that's meant to ultimately lead us to the person who possesses those qualities, who possesses those values. And so when, 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 when a man is attracted to the woman's features, we have to realize that these features don't exist in the abstract. I'm going to move this way just because I want to I see people over on the backside here. I feel like they're left out. Is that okay? Can I come over by you guys for a bit? You guys get a little bit of a special attention here, okay? So here's what I want to tell you is that these qualities don't reside in the abstract. They reside in concrete human persons, right? 
In other words, there's no man that wakes up on a Wednesday morning and says, I'm attracted to blonde. I need blonde. I've got to go find some blondness out there. No, no, no. He may be very attracted to a particular woman who has blonde hair, but he's not attracted to blondness in the abstract. Similarly, there's no woman that just wakes up again on a Thursday morning and says, I, I'm so attracted to masculinity. I need masculinity. I've got to go find some masculinity. I need to find some masculinity. No, no, no. She may be very attracted to a particular man that's very chivalrous. He's decisive. He's virtuous. She may be attracted to his masculinity, but not masculinity abstract. She's attracted to the man that has the quality. Do you understand how this works? So God put qualities in the person to make us attractive. But the qualities are meant to draw you not to the qualities themselves, but to the person who has those qualities. The danger comes when we focus on the qualities themselves and the, um, and the rush of pleasure or enjoyment that we may get from them. That's where we'll fall into the trap of starting to use people. I'm going to use them just for the feelings I get out of them or the pleasure I get from them. It's kind of like this, you know, JP2, in part of his book, he talks about how the, um, what's going on in a human person's sexual sphere is different than the animal's. And it's important that you recognize this, that in the animal world, they have sexual instinct. In other words, they, they just act on instinct. Do you remember when you would go to the doctor and they had that little triangular rubber thing? You know, remember it hits your knee and your knee bounces out? Do you know what I'm talking about? That's just instinct, right? It just happens, it, boom, you know, it's a reflex mode of action. You don't even think about it. That's how animals are. Animals in their sexual sphere and in their, all of their appetites, it's just instinct. It's just a reflex mode of action. They're not thinking about it, right? If there was a hungry dog in the neighborhood here and, and it hasn't eaten for days and we had a big juicy steak right here in the room and that dog comes rushing in, tell me, what's that dog going to do? It's going to devour the steak, right? Is the dog going to come up to the steak and say, oh, oh wait, I'll let the lady dogs go first. <laughs> it's not going to do this. It's just going to act on its appetite. Or is the dog going to run up and say, oh, oh, it's a Friday in Lent. No, can't eat the steak. No, the dog's just going to act on its appetite. The same thing. If there's a cat in heat here in this, in this neighborhood, that cat's just going to go find some male cat, right? It's not going to go around and interview male cats and do a 72-day novena and discern the relationship. No, the cat's just going to act, right? The cat doesn't go around and say, oh, I choose you, Mr. Cat. You will be the one. I give myself to you in good times or in bad, in sickness or no. No, the cat just acts. That's how animals work. We as human beings are not merely animals. God gave us a mind. He wants us to think. He gave us a free will to choose. We are not meant to be slaves to what's happening in our sexual sphere, and our sexual appetites. These aren't bad. God gave them for good, but they're meant to lead us to the person who has the qualities we're drawn toward. If we allow our sexual sphere to guide us, we will end up being slaves. And that's what the modern world wants you to do. The modern world wants you to be a slave to your sexual appetites. The modern world actually doesn't recognize your dignity. It's basically saying you're just a bunch of animals. Just copulate like the animals. But JP2 says, no, you are greater. We are capable of rising above those sexual appetites so that we can create something so profound 
something that comes from God. And you know what that is? It's love, that we can create love, which is to seek the best of someone else. Okay, so that's a little background here. What I want to do is turn our attention now to the first side of the equation. So if you look at the, on the left side, two kinds of attraction. I'm going to briefly just talk to you about sensuality. Sensuality. I, I, I'm going to talk more about the emotional side because most people don't talk about that, but briefly. God made us with sensual desire. Is sensual desire bad? No, it's good. It's meant to orient us to the person who possesses those sexual qualities. The challenge comes, again, when I reduce the person to an object that's meant to be exploited for my own pleasure, either in my actions or even in my thoughts or in my imagination. When I think about someone of the opposite sex and I just reduce them to a body to exploit for my pleasure, my sexual satisfaction, that's total use. That's dangerous. But I, I want to say a few words about this because uh, many people would say, well, what's the big deal? You know, why can't we just be able to do whatever we want in the sexual sphere? And I'm going to draw a couple of quotes from the, from the book I have over here in a moment, so I'm going to walk back this way. But, you know, one thing I would say here about this is, in our world today, sex is viewed primarily simply as a form of recreation. It's just a, it's merely a form of recreation, you know? It's like, you're with some guy, and he says, hey, let's go see a movie, let's go get some dinner, let's get some ice cream, let's have some sex, let's go to the baseball game. You know, it's, like, it's, just, you know, it's just like one thing you do. Sex is just about recreation, primarily in the modern world. But John Paul II reminds us sex is a profoundly personal act. It's, it's, a most, it's the most intense personal expression of love. And this is something theology of the body brings out so beautifully that when two human persons come together in the most intimate physical act they can perform together, they're giving not just their bodies to each other, but in that physical expression, they're giving their very selves to each other. It's meant to be an expression of total, faithful, committed, fruitful love. And yet, so many people today, even good Christians, will enter into relationships and they'll compromise in this area because they so desperately want to have a boyfriend or so desperately want to have a girlfriend. They think, I guess this is just what you have to do in the modern world so you're not lonely. You know, in, in my new edition of the book that just came out a couple years ago, uh, it, this book came out a, while, a long time ago, and I got all this feedback of stories from people from all different parts of the world, including Australia. I had some people submit some stories from here in Australia. And, and, and then what I did was I, I kept all the content in the old book, but I added in all these stories of people whose lives were, were impacted by JP2's wisdom. And I'm going to share with you a couple stories from some young women, what they told me. They said, you know, they, they would get into it. They didn't want to have sex. But they were in this dating relationship and they thought, I, I got to do this to keep the relationship. And one woman said, if I start by giving him what he wants, then maybe he'll eventually love me as a person. So they thought, well, if I compromise here, I know he doesn't really love me. He just wants to go in bed with me. But, but maybe if I could do this, we'll have this profound bond and then he'll start to love me for who I am. You almost hear this woman just desperately think, if I just compromise, then, then maybe I'm lovable. Another young woman described her relationship with her boyfriend this way. She said this, I knew he was just using me, and I let him. I let him. I thought that if I were to go along with this for a while, then he would eventually change 
and come to love me. But in all these stories, all these men, all these women that compromised here all admitted that it never worked. It never, ever, ever worked. That they would go from one boy to the next and they'd compromise and compromise, hoping that somehow this would win the man's love, but it didn't work. And and the guys also talked about it as well, though not as much as the woman. You see, sex without total commitment, without total self-giving, you have to realize the other person, when you engage in that, the other person is simply not really committed to you. So when somebody has sex with you, but it's outside of marriage, they're, they're not really committed to you. They're just committed to what they get out of you. The good feelings, the pleasure, the enjoyment, the good times. But what happens when those feelings start to fade, which they will? They always do. What happens when the the pleasure starts to fade or or there's something more interesting or novel or some other good-looking person over here that I could have sex with? Am I really going to be committed to you? Deep down, we know that other person is not committed to me for who I am. They're just committed to what they get out of me. The security of having a boyfriend, the pleasure, the fun times. But when those fade, there's nothing left as a foundation for the relationship. When someone has sex outside of the commitment of marriage, it's basically saying, I love you, I give myself to you, and I accept you until someone better comes along. They don't really have a committed, lasting love for you. Now, again, many chastity speakers, I know you had Jason Everett in here recently and others will address those topics more. I like to talk about the other side of this equation, and that's the emotional side here. I really like to think about this one a lot because in our day and age, there's so much focus on love as emotions. John Paul II says that love is often reduced to feelings. Love is often reduced to feelings. Where when, if you have to define love, if you want to gauge, am I in love? If you want to get a sense, am I growing in love in this relationship? Where do you turn? You typically will tend to turn inside to your emotions and go, wow, I'm getting more and more emotions. That must mean I'm falling more and more in love. But John Paul II reminds us that real love is not based on emotions. It's not that emotions are bad. Emotions are wonderful. When you have those rush of emotions, it's a really good thing. I want to be clear on that. You know, the ideal relationship isn't when You know, if I were to say to my wife, hey, Beth, I love you. I'm totally committed to you. I would die for you. I have absolutely no feelings for you, but I love you. That's not not the ideal relationship, right? Feelings can be a part of the ingredients of love, but it's not the center. And it's certainly not the foundation. So we have to realize love is not reduced to feelings. And here's why. Here's why Here's why feelings are dangerous if you're using that as your guide. Do I love this person? Are we in love together? If you're using that as a guide, you're in great trouble in your dating relationships and your future marriage. Here's why. John Paul II explains, feelings are blind. Feelings are blind. What does he mean by that? Okay, let's think about this. God gave us different powers in our soul. He gave us a mind. He gave us an intellect to think, to see the truth. He gave us a will to choose, to choose the good. And then he gave us our emotions, our feelings, and our passions. All right, so I'm going to ask you, which part of the soul has the responsibility 
for discerning truth. If you want to know the truth about this other person, is this the kind of person I want a dating relationship with? Is this the kind of person I want to marry? Is this the kind of person I want to spend forming the character of my future children? Those kind of big questions. What power of the soul? If you want to gauge, is this love? Do you turn to the mind, to the will, or to the emotions? Which part, of the, which part of the soul discerns truth? The mind, right? But let's just think about this for a moment, just for a moment. If, if, if you're in math class and, and your teacher says, what's two plus two? What part of your soul are you using to figure out what two plus two is? Your mind, your will, or your emotions? You're using your mind, right? When they build the big bridge over the harbor here, right? Are, are they using their feelings or are they using their mind? <laughs> Using their mind. If, if I'm in math class and the te- in picture, the teacher says, what's two plus two? And then everybody else says five. But I raise my hand and say, wait, 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 teacher. Wait, teacher. No, no, no. For me, two plus two feels like five. <laughs> I just get this powerful feeling that it's really five. You know that feeling where you see the two lines in the five and then the curve. You're thinking, that guy's crazy. (laughs) You don't want him building that bridge. You're not driving over a bridge built with someone that built it by feelings, right? We get that when it comes to bridges. We get that when it comes to math class. But we got to realize when we're trying to figure out, should I be in this dating relationship? Am I ready to be in a dating relationship? Is this person, does this person have the moral character, the virtue to love me? and to serve me, and to lay down their life for me. Those are big questions that have nothing to do, zero to do with your feelings. Don't get me wrong. Remember what I said earlier, feelings are fine. It's great to have them, but that's not the center of love. And so many people base their their lives thinking about feelings. They they just gauge uh, everything based on feelings, right? You know, it's like, you know, if I've got these rush of emotions, then it must be love. But when the emotions go away, then it's not love. And that's how people go into their marriages, my friends. So many very intelligent, smart, professional people that can do many great things in the business world, in science, and in education, and technology. But when it comes to the most basic fundamental things in life, like marriage, they trust their feelings. And what happens when you go into a marriage seven months or seven years and feelings is your barometer for whether you're in love. What happens when you lost that love and feeling? Well, then, whoa, 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 the relationship's over and must not be in love, and so I move on to the next thing. True story. There's a, there's a woman I met on a plane in the United States. She was asking, I was telling her about, she asked me what I was doing. I told her I was giving this talk on marriage, and I was talking about some of these ideas. And we talked for about 10 minutes, and she just looks at me in awe, and she just says, oh, my, thank you. I said, oh, what did I do? And she said, you just saved my marriage. I thought, I I was just talking about what love is. She goes, no, you don't understand. She was a devout Christian, not a Catholic, but she was a devout Lutheran Christian. Was really involved in her church. So a good Bible-believing Christian. But she has said, she says, for so many years, the last seven years, I've been so disillusioned in my marriage. Because I've been wondering why my marriage is not like all the love songs I listen to on the radio. 
Notice her vision for what love is is shaped by love songs, shaped by Netflix, and, 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 and her marriage was, was hard and required work. Well, that's what real love is. You know, here's what happens sometimes, though. When we get swept away from our emotions, we've got to realize the challenge here. I'm going to share with you something John Paul II says about this. He says that when we lead with our emotions, we use our emotions to discern, we don't always see the truth of what's really happening between me and this other person. So what happens is like I, I, I meet this person and then my emotions take over. And then he says, the beloved person that we're emotionally attached to grows enormously. The value of our beloved grows enormously out of all proportion to his or her real value. And in other words, we, we, we quickly, the emotions run ahead of our mind and they quickly exaggerate the value, the qualities of this person. You know, so for example... I remember, you know, there was a guy I went to university with, and he had a lot of ups and downs in his dating relationships. He, he would date a gal, and then, you know, they'd be, and he'd be falling in love, and like, this is the one, and then four months later, they break up, and he was heartbroken. This, this cycle just kept happening and happening. And, he's, and, and he always had this line. It was, it was really pathetic. You know, you'd ask him about this girl. He goes, oh, I think she might be the one. You know, she's really smart, and... She's athletic. She likes to run because he was really athletic. That was really cool for him. And, and she's really caring. And then here's the line he said, and she reminds me of my mom. And I was always like, oh, not the mom thing again. Oh, man, come on. And you know what he's doing? Like he meets someone that has some of the qualities. And then he like throws upon her all of these ideal qualities that she doesn't really have in reality. And that's what we tend to do many times. You know, again, there's some gal comes to this nice, you know, gathering here at the pub and the culture project, a lot of good single men and women together. This is a great place to meet a good Catholic. This is awesome. And, and, she, and, she, and this gal has a conversation with this guy and they talk for about 20 minutes. And she leaves tonight, can't stop thinking about him, can't wait to see him again. She's thinking about what kind of wedding dress she's going to have. Okay, you girls are laughing, but you know it's true. You know it's true. Come on, I, I've had people from all over the world, Italy, Europe, Asia here, tell me this is true. Our emotions easily get the best of us. What's happening is you meet someone that has, you know, two and a half of your top 10 qualities you're looking in for in your ideal marriage partner, right? And all of a sudden you make them out to be like this perfect person. Well, he's Catholic and he... He believes in God. So I mean, he's, he's, he's almost as holy as blessed Pierre Giorgio and, and just as handsome. I mean, I could just see us, the wedding picture, me and him on the mountain with the pipe, and this is just going to be awesome. We do things like this. Guys, by the way, watch out. 20 minutes with one woman. Be careful. Watch out. Okay, you got to be careful. You know, but, but, but these are the kinds of things... We end up doing. Why do we do this? You know what John Paul II says? The reason we tend to exaggerate the qualities of our beloved is that deep down in, all, in, our, in our hearts, we're longing to find someone that is Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect. We're, we're longing to find someone that's going to fill all of our emotional needs. So as soon as I meet someone with a little bit of those qualities, I throw all these other qualities on them because it gives me this big rush of emotions, this powerful feeling. But do you see what you're doing? Are you really loving that person when you do that? 
No, you're loving the ideal image you created of this person, not the person themselves, but this ideal. And you're, you're basically using the person for the rush of emotions you get from thinking about how wonderful they might be. But you're not really loving them. And eventually you have to face the real them. And it's going to let you down. And you're going to be disappointed. And you have to work in the relationship and you'll get frustrated. And that's why I remember there was, a, there was a Protestant group in the United States a friend of mine was involved with. And on their university, they had all these men's Bible study groups and all these women Bible study groups. And the men and the women were all, you know, doing their own Bible study groups. But one spring semester, someone had the bright idea of, hey, let's start prayer partners between the guys and the gals. And so every guy had a gal that was her, his prayer partner. So picture this. You know, she, they would get together one-on-one -on -one and pray and get to know each other. And he'd ask, well, tell me what I can pray for. And she says, well, I'm going to go home for, for break this next week. And there's some things that are really hard with my family. And he says, oh, let's pray for that. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift of Sally. And may you bless her and encourage her as she's going home and Give her the courage. Help her to know how much she's loved by you and how much, how much I love her. I mean, how much you love her. And you know, just picture, you know, like, and this picture of little Sally, like, this guy's praying for me. This is awesome. So picture all these prayer partners coming together in the spring. <laughs> now, what do you think started happening with all these prayer partners? Guess what they started doing? They all started dating. <laughs> so they're all starting to date. Uh, and there's all this great romance, and then they go away for summer vacation, summer break, and now they're away from each other for three months, and then they come back to campus, and after a three-month hiatus of breathing in reality again, guess what happened when they all came back? They all broke up, and there was a complete, complete chaos in this ministry movement on campus because all the guys and girls hated each other, right? But that's what happens. We tend to open up too soon and share too much about our lives with someone because we want that rush of emotions and feel like, wow, I'm connected. I went to this retreat, and I met this one guy, and we stayed up till 2 in the morning, and we talked about our lives and our hurts from the past and previous boyfriends and girlfriends and how many kids we hope to have someday. And it's just kind of like, that's just too much information on date one, two, three, four, and five, probably. You're just getting to know each other. But part of the problem is our culture makes it hard because our culture is constantly getting us to view the other person in either a sexualized way of love or an emotional way of love, right? That's just what we breathe in. You, you just listen to the pop culture and that's what the culture is telling you, right? It's either sexual or over-emotional. So you either go for the Ed Sheeran way of love, which is, I'm in love with your body. I'm in love with the shape of you. Yeah, I guess my heart's kind of fallen too, but it's really not about the heart. I, he just admits, it, it's really just, I'm in love with your body. Ladies, you deserve to be loved for who you are and not just your body. You deserve to be loved for who you are. Don't follow the path and compromise for Ed Sheeran love. On the same side, there's the hyper-emotional side. All these love songs that you can go on about, you know, you make me feel so good. I can't live without you. And it's like, yeah, you lived 18 years without this person. You really will be fine. <laughs> and you think about all the movies that are out there that are constantly reinforcing the sensual view of love or the hyper-emotional view of love. You know, I always love to pick on this movie, Titanic. 
I know it's an old movie, but let's be honest. You all saw it, right? You all saw Titanic? Even the guys. Guys, you saw Titanic. Come on. Did you know that when that movie first came out, teenage girls went to the theater over and over and over again to watch that movie many times? Then it came out on DVD, and they kept watching it. Do you know why? Here's my theory. This is why teenage girls kept watching that movie, is I'm convinced teenage girls in the modern Western world are fascinated by movies about boats. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, it's just a hyper-emotional view of love, right? Let's just, I want you to bring your mind to the movie. This is the last little thought I'll give you here. Ready? So I want you to bring your mind to any movie you watch. Use your mind. Think about this. Jack and Rose, right? You know, Kate and Leonardo DiCaprio, right? The two main characters. Everybody thinks this was the perfect love, the ideal love. You know, if the adult world didn't destroy the ship, this would have been the perfect love that would have lasted forever. Bring your mind to that movie. How long did they really know each other for? Like three or four days, right? And most of those three or four days, were they even together? Remember, she's in the first class, he's down in the peasant class. They barely spent any time together. But this is the perfect love. You know, and then let's, here's another thing, ladies. Let's just bring your mind to the movie. Ready? What did Jack do for a living? What did Jack do for a living? He was a painter. Yes, that's what you would go home and tell your mom. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, he's a painter. But what did he paint? What did he paint? Do you remember? Naked women. Go home to grandma. Hi, I met a boyfriend. He paints naked women. But you can bring your mind to this, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Jack died for Rose, right? Heroic love, self-giving love. I love that part. That's the one noble aspect of love in that movie. The rest of the vision of love that you find in the movie Titanic is, is almost as worse as the original shipwreck. <laughs> really, I, mean, okay, I just want you to just, let's just think for a moment about, here's the, here's the iconic picture of love, right? This is what love is according to the movie Titanic. I'll come over here, Susie. That's what love is, right? And, and did you know that like after that movie, for many, many years, they had to put security guards at the, at the cru top front of the cruise liners at all the cruise liners around the world. They had to put a security guard there, right? Because all of these young women wanted to know, you know, they really wanted their boyfriends to take them on a cruise ship and then do this thing, right? They'd be like, you know, just hold me like Jack held Rose. We'll play Celine Dion in the background. <laughs> And then I'll know you really love me. <laughs> That's not real love. That's fake Hollywood artificial love. And it feeds our culture of being swept away by our emotions. So my friends, I want you to really keep this in mind. God made us with a sensual desire. That's not bad. He made us with an emotional desire. That's not bad either. But we want to remember what is true love. So in closing, in summary here, what's the ultimate picture? John Paul II says, when many people look inside to figure out what love is, they turn to their emotions, they turn to their sensual experiences. He says, that inward kind of looking love, that's not love at all. You know what he calls it? He says, if you have a lot of rush of emotions and a lot of sexual desire, he says, you're not in love. You're just having, quote, a psychological experience. <laughs> that's what he says. You're just getting these emotional and, 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 and sexual reactions. That's all that's going on. That's not love. Here's what real love is. Real love 
is to will the good of the other. It's to seek what's best for the other person. Real love is outward looking. It's not, you make me feel so good. You give me pleasure. You make me feel not lonely anymore. No, no, it's not about what you do for me. Real love is not so self-centered. You give me emotions. No, real love is outward looking. I seek what's best for you. And to seek what's best for someone else requires virtue. You can't just walk into a dating relationship and think, wow, I'm going to love this person. I'll lay down my life and I'll serve them. If you don't train yourself right now in virtue, if you don't train yourself to live for other people in your friendships, in your young adult community here in Sydney, if you don't constantly work on striving to serve something bigger than yourself right now, you tell yourself, you know, I'm grateful for Culture Project. I want to volunteer. I, I, I want to go. I want to help. I want to serve and then commit and show up every time. Don't, just don't show up when it's convenient for you or interesting for you. Give your life to commit to something. Or maybe it's, I'm going to go help at the soup kitchen. I'm going to help serve the poor. I'm going to help at my local parish. Commit to something where you have to serve no matter what. Because I'll tell you, when you get married someday, and especially when you're blessed with kids, that's what married life is all about. It's not about, oh, you make me feel so good. You get date night with your wife every once in a while, that's true, but most of the time, it's constant laying down your life. Kids getting up all night long, constant serving, constant not being able to do what you want. And if you, the best thing you could do to prepare for marriage, I always tell young people, is right now, do things where you are stretched to serve and sacrifice, not when it's interesting, not just when, you're, when it's fun, but be committed. I'm going to come every first Friday and do this. I'm going to come every Tuesday night and do this because that's what God is going to ask you to do in your marriage and in your family. All right, Therns, thank you so much. I'm going to... Oh. That was Dr. Edward Sree with Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. For more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.